This is Jeffrey Epstein, Part 2, The Deep Dive. I have a lot of information on what has been released since our last episode. I've done a lot of research to try to uncover exactly why Jeffrey Epstein got his sweetheart deal, his sweetheart plea deal, back in 2007. Details coming up. Hey, this is Doc Washburn. There's been quite a bit more breaking news on Jeffrey Epstein since our last episode. As a reminder, Epstein was a child sex trafficker with powerful friends in high places. He trafficked underage girls, raped quite a few of them himself, and is widely assumed to have blackmailed many wealthy and powerful people. There were closed-circuit security cameras all over Little St. James, the island he owned in the U.S. Virgin Islands Territory, and all over his mansion in Palm Beach, Florida. It's believed that he used video evidence from those two locations and his New Mexico ranch and his New York townhouse to blackmail a lot of people. Now, despite the fact that he did not have a college degree. Epstein began his business career at 21 years old as a math teacher at the Dalton School, a private co-ed college prep school in New York City. He was hired by Donald Barr, father of William Barr, later U.S. Attorney General under George H.W. Bush and Donald Trump. Bill Barr's dad, Donald Barr, was in the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, in World War II, which was the forerunner to the CIA just so you know. For information on the sweetheart deal that Epstein got from the feds in 2009, who the federal prosecutor was, and a lot more background information, including Epstein's suspicious death and the suspicious death of the man from Arkansas who got him into the White House to see President Clinton seven times, please refer back to our previous episode, Jeffrey Epstein, Part 1. Now, the documents that have been released in batches in this month of January 2024 were filed in connection with a Manhattan federal court lawsuit by Epstein victim Virginia Jeffrey against Maxwell. Only Jeffrey Epstein and Glenn Maxwell were criminally charged in connection with Epstein's longstanding abuse of girls and young women at residences in New York, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and elsewhere. One of the most thorough researchers and reporters I have ever come across, and not just on this issue, goes by the handle Techno Fog. Now, he writes a column over at Substack called The Reactionary. You can subscribe to his Substack articles for just $50 a year. That's $4.17 a month, which begins with a seven-day free trial. And after I share his latest with you, I think you're probably going to want to do that. I sure did. Now, before we get to what has and has not been claimed about Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, and others, let's take a look at Technofog's latest offering from Friday, January 5th, entitled, The Latest on the Epstein Files. He says, this is a continuation of the Epstein Files, the summary of the release of depositions, motions, and witness statements from Virginia Jeffrey versus Glenn Maxwell. His previous article, published January 3rd, identified the most damning allegations against Epstein, Maxwell, and the John Doe's, both previously known and unknown to the public. Now, we covered that in great detail on the most recent edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Technofog's goal remains the same, 
to provide a big-picture debriefing of the most relevant and important information that has been released to the public. Specifically, he focuses on the hundreds, if not thousands, of pages produced on January 4th and 5th of this year, which you can download and view, courtesy of a guy named Seamus Bruner. And Technofog helpfully provides the link on his own Substack. He then begins with the identity of new John Doe's. First, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak. Now, a few days earlier, the deposition of, uh, the deposition of Virginia Jeffrey was released, where she alleged being traf- trafficked by Epstein and Maxwell to billionaire businessmen Glenn Dubin and Tom Pritzker, as well as an unnamed foreign official. On January 5th, they got the answer to the identity of the previously unnamed foreign official, former Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Barak. Now, that allegation comes not from the release of Jeffrey's deposition, but from a filing from Harvard professor Alan Dershowitz in an effort to convince the court and the public of his innocence, Dershowitz's own innocence. Now, it's no surprise that Ehud Barak's name would emerge as an alleged perpetrator. His name was brought up in the questioning of at least one witness to Epstein and Maxwell's crimes. And Ehud Barak had a long relationship with Epstein over the years, described as a regular guest of Epstein's and meeting him at least three dozen times after Epstein's Florida conviction. Now, Ehud Barak would eventually disavow Epstein and explain that Epstein would bring interesting persons together for discussions. Right. Yeah, yeah, sure, we'll buy that. Next, John Doe, I guess this should be more of a Jane Doe, Adriana Ross. Now, there was a long and substantial fight in the Virginia Jeffrey case over the production of evidence, not just for Glenn Maxwell's emails and financial records, more on that in a moment, but for access to the internal computer system at Jeffrey Epstein's home. In the latest unsealed records, one witness testified to the very troubling removal of evidence from Epstein's Palm Beach mansion. Back in, the, back in the mid-2000s, as the Palm Beach Police Department's investigation into Jeffrey Epstein was heating up, Epstein employee-slash-associate Adriana Ross removed three computers from Epstein's home with an unknown male. Here's what the witness said. Question. All right, but the computers... The removal by Adriana and this individual, that wasn't done. We're talking about a different, that's not a time where they were replacing computers. This was just removing computers from the house? Answer, yes. Question, and did you receive any explanation as to why the computers were being removed from the house? Answer, no. Question, so when was the first time that you learned that Adriana and some gentleman that you had never met will be coming to the home to remove the computers. Answer. I got the phone call from her that there would be, I don't know what time it was in the house, and certain time 
and they would pick up those computers. Now, some might call that the destruction of evidence, undoubtedly done at the direction of Jeffrey Epstein himself. It's a crime, or at a minimum, an opportunity for the authorities to lean on a witness. Of course, one would suspect that the evidence and documents and photographs inside those computers would implicate Epstein and likely others, whether Epstein's co-conspirators or his governmental relations. Yet there's a twist to the story. Adriana Ross was provided immunity from prosecution as part of Jeffrey Epstein's 2007 deal with the DOJ. Next, Sarah Kellen. Now, I did some background research on Sarah Kellen myself. Turns out she's now married to former NASCAR driver Brian Vickers, claims she wasn't some kind of monster, and says that she herself was one of Jeffrey Epstein's victims too. But back to Technofog's Substack article, he says, another familiar name that has emerged in the releases from the Virginia Jeffrey lawsuit is Sarah Kellen, the notorious Epstein employee-slash-affiliate who has been credibly accused with facilitating the abuse of minors. One victim who testified at Glenn Maxwell's criminal trial accused Kellen of arranging Epstein's so-called messages with minors such as herself. On January 5th, the deposition testimony of a former Epstein employee who further implicated Kellen came out. It says he would pay Epstein's victims at Sarah Kellen's instruction. It says the witness described himself as a virtual ATM machine for Epstein. That's how frequently the victims were paid, apparently at Kellen's direction. Now, Sarah Kellen's deposition was also released. She would plead the fifth to all questions asked. Here's an example. Question. Would you agree with me that there was an agreement between Jeffrey Epstein, Glenn Maxwell, Jean-Luc Brunel, yourself, and Nadia Marcinkova to bring in girls that were underage from out of state for sexual contact? Answer. On the instruction of my lawyer, I must invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege. Now, Sarah Kellen walks free to this day. She was part of Epstein's non-prosecution agreement, and a likely New York grand jury investigation into her actions did not result in a prosecution. Okay, now, look, at this point, I have to remind you what an incredible plea bargain the feds gave Epstein in 2007. They promised not to prosecute any of his co-conspirators. Have you ever heard of anything like that? It's not hard to figure out why, is it? They didn't want the truth coming out. They didn't want powerful people's crimes exposed. But is there another reason that no one has brought out? That's what I wanted to know, and that's what I've been researching. And that is coming up, of course, on this episode of the Doc Washburn Show. Next, Nadia Marshinkova. The deposition of another Epstein employee and associate and perpetrator, Nadia Marshinkova, covered by the same 2007 non-prosecution agreement, was also released. Like Sarah Kellen, Nadia, the pilot of Epstein Airlines, 
also invoked the Fifth Amendment. Question. All of these sexual acts with minor females involving you happened in the presence of Jeffrey Epstein? Answer. Fifth. Question. Were you a part of the planning of that scheme of Jeffrey Epstein's to gain access to underage minor females? Answer. Fifth. Next, Technofog tells us about the Glenn Maxwell Clinton Foundation connection. He says, as we already discussed, the fight for documents from Glenn Maxwell was fierce. She produced little voluntarily and fought disclosure at every step of the way, going so far as to refuse to answer straightforward questions during her deposition. One fight in particular was over the payments she had received from Epstein. Another fight was over communications with Bill and Hillary Clinton and whether the Clinton Foundation had ever funded Maxwell or any of her organizations. Now, from time to time, throughout Technofog's Substack article, he's got screenshots from this lawsuit. Okay? So at this point, we want to take a look at this screenshot about Galen Maxwell. By the way, it's spelled G-H-I-S-L-A-I-N-E. But the way they pronounce it, it almost sounds like you're saying the male name, G-L-E-N. Anyway, here's what the screenshot says. In addition, a net worth statement will not give Ms. Jeffrey all the evidence to which she's entitled. For example, defendant, you're talking about Glenn Maxwell, has refused to comply with the discovery request seeking information about her connection to the Clinton Foundation, claiming that such a request is obviously intended to harass and embarrass her. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is defendant who intends to argue at trial that Ms. Jeffrey has made inaccurate statements about various interactions with former President Bill Clinton. Of course, if defendant or any of her organizations is receiving funding from the Clinton Foundation, that would provide a clear motive for her to slant testimony on the subject. Ms. Jeffrey is entitled to explore this clear possibility of bias by obtaining the information of the financial connection between defendant and the Clinton Foundation. All right, so you got that. Technofog says, one would think that it would have been simple for Ms. Maxwell to say that neither she nor her organizations have received funding from the Clinton Foundation, but from what we've seen, that never happened. Next. More allegations against Prince Andrew, the guy whose nickname was Randy Andy. As Technofog reported, back on January 3rd, an incriminating photo of Prince Andrew was alleged to have been taken by either Epstein or Maxwell at Epstein's New York home. On January 5th, witness testimony came out that Prince Andrew and his wife, Sarah Ferguson, his then-wife, had stayed at Epstein's Palm Beach home, and the Prince Andrew stayed there for weeks. 
receiving daily <clears throat> massages. Okay, next, the Trump references. Donald Trump was also mentioned by that same witness who stated that Trump had been a guest at Epstein's, likely sometime in the 1990s, before the commission of the crimes alleged against Epstein by state officials. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is also said to have been to Epstein's home in that same time frame. Specifically, the testimony states that Trump never actually stayed at Epstein's home and would actually eat with the staff in the kitchen. Trump, quote, never sat at the table, unquote. So, a man of the people. Who knew? Last but not least, in Technofog's Substack updates the other stuff. The release on January 5th, 2024, also includes notes from the Palm Beach Police Department. A couple of pages stood out. First, the notes indicate that someone in the department or a department contact, quote, could talk with Epstein, knows him well, info passed on to the captain, unquote. And they had the screenshot of that internal note from the Palm Beach, Florida Police Department. Second, the notes reference a message left by Abigail Wexner, the wife of Leslie Wexner. Now, Les Wexner may have actually been Jeffrey Epstein's biggest client. Now, before we get to that message... Let me just tell you who Les Wexner is. Wikipedia is very helpful on this. Leslie Herbert Wexner is an American billionaire businessman who is the founder and chairman emeritus of Bath and Body Works Incorporated. Wexner grew a business empire after starting a clothing retailer called The Limited. He later expanded his holdings to include Victoria's Secret, Abercrombie & Fitch, Express Incorporated, and Bath and Body Works. Now, Wexner hired Jeffrey Epstein as his financial manager sometime in the 1980s and continuing until 2007. Wexner had a very close relationship with Epstein that began in the 80s and continued until Epstein's death. According to Bloomberg, Wexner was once the main client of Epstein's money management firm. Wexner allowed Epstein to run his business out of a house he owned and resided in while CEO of Victoria's Secret. Okay, so now that you know who Les Wexner is, here's the message from his wife. Abigail Wexner wants to talk to you about something private. So, Technofog says, theoretically, there's no reason for the high-profile wife of Epstein's high-profile client to reach out to local police in Palm Beach, Florida. Perhaps she was concerned about her husband's connection to Epstein being publicized. Or, perhaps she was trying to get her own intel on the investigation and pass it on to Epstein or her husband, or maybe a little bit of both. And third, the Palm Beach Police Department notes appear to reference a contact at the U.S. State Department. There was also an allegation in a 2011 email from Virginia Jeffrey that Bill Clinton walked into Vanity Fair's office, the magazine Vanity Fair, and, quote, threatened them not to write sex trafficking articles about his good friend, unquote, Jeffrey Epstein. But 
Technofog says it appears Virginia Jeffrey had some bad information. The truth is that Jeffrey Epstein himself went to Vanity Fair in 2002 and demanded the publication's editor-in-chief suppress a potential article by reporter Vicki Ward. Epstein's effort was successful. The story that Epstein sexually assaulted a 16-year-old and another victim was never published. Now, we also got to see some of the emails exchanged between Jeffrey Epstein and Glenn Maxwell. Epstein was counseling Maxwell on how to engage with the media after the accusations started flying about Epstein again in 2015, and he was encouraging Glenn Maxwell to proclaim her innocence. Okay, so at this point, we want to go to uh, the screenshot about that. It is actually a screenshot of an email from Jeffrey Epstein to Glenn Maxwell. And it says he refers to himself in the third person, person by his initials, J.E., It says, since J.E. was charged in 2007 for solicitation of a prostitute, I have been the target of outright lies, innuendo, slander, defamation, and salacious gossip and harassment, headlines made up of quotes I have never given, statements I have never made, trips with people to places I have never been, holidays with people I have never met, false allegations of impropriety and offensive behavior that I abhor and have never, ever been party to, Witness to events that I have never seen. Living off trust funds that I have never, ever had. Party to stories that have changed materially, both in time, place, and event, depending depending on what paper you read, and the list goes on. I have never been a party in any criminal action pertaining to J.E. Now, this is what Epstein is recommending that Galen Maxwell say to distance herself publicly from Epstein. That isn't, isn't that amazing? So, that just recently came out. Technofog said on January 5th, 2024, that he believed there may be more documents still to be released, but he was still not convinced those documents or depositions would be material. So he planned to update accordingly, and we will be following his substack closely. Finally, Technofog gives a brief update on the Freedom of Information Act lawsuits that he and his folks have against the FBI for Jeffrey Epstein's interviews with the FBI. Now, Technofog already published Epstein's 2002 FBI interview. More on that in just a moment, but he says there are approximately 13 to 15 pages of interviews that still need to be produced, and he and his people are waiting on the resolution of Glenn Maxwell's appeal of a criminal conviction before they can get their hands on those, so he asked for patience. Now, I had no idea that Technofog had published Epstein's 2002 FBI interview until I began proofreading his latest Epstein article on Substack, which I just shared with you. So I clicked the link and went back to May 3rd, 2023 to Technofog's article entitled Confirmed Jeffrey Epstein's History as an FBI Source. Oh my goodness. I mean, that was full of shocks, even for people who assumed that Jeffrey Epstein was tied in with the feds. 
And that's coming up straight ahead on the Doc Washburn Show. If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase a vehicle online if you have any questions. One of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door, no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You'll be glad you did. I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines? The Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life and migraines year-round. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away and the migraines went away for good. Whatever malady you're suffering from, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped so many people I know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com. Click on the tab that says find a doctor near you, and I sure hope you can. Do you want to drop your big liberal cell phone carrier? Patriot Mobile, America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier, is a perfect solution. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. Patriot Mobile guarantees your coverage. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. And switching to Patriot Mobile usually only takes 15 to 20 minutes. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you shift your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com. Or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Okay, as I said a few moments ago, I had no idea that Substack had published Jeffrey Epstein's 2002 FBI interview until I started proofreading his latest Epstein article on Substack, which I just shared with you. Now, I clicked on the link, 
took me back to May 3rd, 2023, to Technofog's article entitled Confirmed Jeffrey Epstein's History as an FBI Source. And while I think most people who had been paying attention somewhat to Epstein, I kind of figured he was tied up with the feds somehow. We didn't know to what extent. Wow. Here's what Technofog said back in May of 2023. It begins back in 2007. The Department of Justice gave Jeffrey Epstein a sweetheart deal that deferred prosecuting Epstein for federal offenses including the interstate sex trafficking of minors and recruiting minors to engage in commercial sex acts. In exchange for Epstein pleading guilty to Florida state-level solicitation of prostitution and procurement charges. The deal was shocking in both its timing and scope. It was made before the FBI had interviewed all of Epstein's victims and before the FBI had seized Epstein's computers, and he shows a screenshot to buttress those claims. Now, it immunized Epstein's known and unknown co-conspirators who were credibly accused of trafficking and abusing minors. A rare and troubling agreement you will not find in any other federal non-prosecution agreement. So when they say unprecedented, they, they really mean unprecedented. Now, here's a very troubling quote from Technofog's article from back in May 2023. If Epstein successfully fulfills all of the terms and conditions of this agreement, the United States also agrees that it will not institute any criminal charges against any potential co-conspirators of Epstein, including but not limited to Sarah Kellen, Adriana Loss, Leslie Groff, or Nadia Marcinkova. So it implicated both U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Florida, Alex Acosta, and Maine Justice in Washington, D.C., which approved of the plea deal, delayed the grand jury, and stopped victims from being notified of the agreement, which was in violation of federal law. After that unique and disturbing deal was reached, questions began to surface regarding Epstein's relationship with the FBI and U.S. intelligence. These questions only became more prominent the more we learned of Epstein's shady financial dealings and of his relationships with powerful friends and associates in politics, intelligence, business, education, and finance, including President Bill Clinton, former Prime Minister of Israel Ehud Barak, former CIA Director William Burns, Bill Gates, and former Obama White House Counsel Catherine Rumler. Adding to the intrigue were the words of Alex Acosta, the then U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Florida, who gave Epstein his non-prosecution agreement. According to the Daily Beast, Acosta cut the non-prosecution deal with one of Epstein's attorneys because he had been told to back off, that Epstein was above his pay grade. Quote, I was told Epstein belonged to intelligence and to leave it alone, unquote. 
Then we discovered in 2018 that Epstein had been informing the FBI way back in 2008 after his plea deal with the DOJ had been signed. In the FBI's words, and again, they got a screenshot for this too, Epstein has also provided information to the FBI as agreed upon. So, Technofog has a footnote here in which he says subsequent reporting from the Miami Herald confirmed the purpose of Epstein's cooperation with the FBI in 2008. Epstein, and this is a quote now, Epstein cooperated in the prosecution of a pair of executives and now defunct Bear Stearns financial firm and received valuable consideration for providing investigators with unspecified information. Now, file that away. Remember Bear Stearns, because we're going to come back to that later on on this episode of the Doc Washburn Show. But by the way, those Bear Stearns executives were Ralph Chiaffi and Matthew Tannen, who were charged in 2008 with, one, conspiracy to commit securities fraud and wire fraud, and two, securities fraud, and three, wire fraud, all relating to funds they oversaw. Now, remember, we're going to come back to Bear Stearns a little bit later. Technofog says we have our doubts about the importance of Epstein's testimony in that case. We suspect he had little to offer prosecutors and that what he did offer would not have justified the reported shortening of Epstein's sentencing. When it went to trial in the fall of 2009, Epstein did not testify as a witness. From the court records we've reviewed, it appears that Epstein wasn't even included on the government's witness list. The Bear Stearns executives were ultimately acquitted by a jury after deliberating only for only six hours. This all leads me to a question. What other information did Epstein provide in 2008 that was so valuable to the FBI? And... Technofog then embeds a screenshot of his own tweet from May 24th, 2018, saying, Wait, was pedophile Jeffrey Epstein an informant for Mueller's FBI? And again, he has a screenshot from the May 24th, 2018 FBI vault release. And it says, Epstein also provided information to the FBI as agreed upon. So Technofog says, Is that why he escaped serious charges for molesting over 20 girls? That raised a red flag and caused us to suspect that Epstein's relationship with the FBI went back further than 2008. So we demanded all of Epstein's interviews from the FBI. The FBI didn't deny these records existed. Instead, It hid behind the Freedom of Information Act law enforcement exemption. Good news. We have defeated that law enforcement exemption in the FOIA, at least partially. In doing so, we have uncovered records concerning Epstein's history as a source for the FBI, and it dates back before his 2007 plea deal So here's what we can confirm. Epstein's history of cooperation 
where the FBI goes back as far as 2002. We have the summary of the FBI interview that he did, the 302 form, in which he reported financial fraud from concerning a potential telecommunications investor. It's fascinating. Epstein's interview with the FBI related to a still unknown executive's and social acquaintance of Epstein attempts to induce Epstein to hand over $15 million as a bridge loan to assist in the purchase of a bankrupt telecommunications company. The investor said he had $15 million tied up in U.S. bonds, which he couldn't use as bank collateral, due to tax reasons, and so he asked Epstein to loan him the money in exchange for 15% interest, a $500,000 fee, and equity in the company. Now, Epstein was intrigued, but he had questions, and here's the screenshot from the FBI form. It says, Epstein questioned so-and-so, and name redacted, as to why he didn't just borrow against the U.S. Treasury bonds with a bank since he could borrow nearly dollar for dollar on this collateral. Name redacted explained to Epstein that his partner had $130 million U.S. Treasury bonds in an offshore restricted account. The bonds could not be repatriated to the U.S. for tax reasons but could be pledged. Due to the time constraints for making the $15 million down payment, going to a bank for the down payment was not an option as he needed the funds as soon as possible. Although Epstein thought the explanation concerning the bonds to be a little unusual, he was intrigued about the opportunity to make a significant return on the bridge loan and was interested in name-redacted's home if the deal fell apart. So Technofog continues here. He says, Epstein's suspicions proved to be correct and his due diligence uncovered false representations concerning the bonds and other proposed collateral such as the executive's homes. Ultimately, the deal fell through and Epstein was questioned by the FBI in May of 2002. We're still working on the identity of the executive. It appears he was uncharged by the FBI. Interesting subject matter, but this is most important because it confirms the FBI Epstein history before the plea deal. We also have reason to suspect that there are more, perhaps two more, Epstein interviews with the FBI that have yet to be made public, not counting the 2008 interview those that might suggest a relationship between the FBI and Epstein. But getting those interviews will require a fight with the FBI. So why won't the FBI hand over the documents? You're not going to believe the answer. According to the FBI, producing the interviews would violate Jeffrey Epstein's privacy interests. You got that? Let me run this by you again. According to the FBI, producing the interviews would violate Jeffrey Epstein's privacy interests. I'm not making that up. 
And that's how Technofog's article in Substack back in May on Jeffrey Epstein being an FBI informant concludes. Man, oh man. Now, I want to go back to thinking about how Maine Justice, the term they use when they're talking about the U.S. Department of Justice in D.C., fits into all this. But first, I think we need to be very careful not to lose sight of the victims themselves, what they went through, and their pursuit of justice. Deborah Hine over at American Greatness had an update on the Epstein saga on Monday, January 8th, entitled The Clintons, Richard Branson, Prince Andrew, and Donald Trump, named and newly released Epstein documents. Now, before we get into it, I just want to remind you that in America, everyone is supposed to be presumed not guilty until found guilty in a court of law. Okay, here it goes. Deborah Hines' article begins, Business magnate Richard Branson, Prince Andrew, Hillary Clinton, and former presidents Bill Clinton and Donald Trump were named in the latest Jeffrey Epstein documents released Monday. Sarah Ransom, last name is spelled R-A-N-S-O-M-E, Sarah Ransom, one of Epstein's victims, claimed sex tapes were taken of the Duke of York, that's Prince Andrew, Bill Clinton, Richard Branson, according to the newly unsealed court files. Now, she has since retracted all of her claims allegedly out of fear for her family. The documents stem from a settled 2015 lawsuit filed by Epstein victim Virginia Roberts Jeffrey against Epstein's former girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell. After the case was settled in 2017, Jeffrey and many others called for the names to be made public. An American judge ordered hundreds of documents with nearly 200 people linked to Jeffrey Epstein to be unsealed, and the process began the first week of January 2024. Now, Sarah Ransom wrote to then New York Post columnist Maureen Callahan in 2016, saying, when my friend had sexual intercourse with Clinton, Prince Andrew, and Richard Branson, sex tapes were in fact filed on each separate occasion by Jeffrey. She continued, thank God she managed to get a hold of some footage of the filmed sex tapes which clearly identify the faces of Clinton, Prince Andrew, and Richard Branson having sexual intercourse with her. Frustratingly enough, Epstein was not seen in any of the footage, but he was clever like that. Sarah Ransom alleged the footage was backed up on several USB sticks sent to Europe. She said, when my friend eventually had the courage to speak out and went to the police in 2008 to report what had happened, nothing was done, and she was utterly humiliated by the police department where she went to report what had happened with Epstein, Clinton, Branson, and Prince Andrew. Now, a law firm representing Alan Dershowitz, Epstein's then lawyer, 
flagged the communications to demonstrate that Sarah Ransom, quote, manifestly lacks credibility, unquote. Prince Andrew himself stepped down from public life after his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein was exposed in a civil sexual assault case with Virginia Jeffrey, a woman he claimed to have never met. Yeah, but there's a, there's a picture of Prince Andrew with her and Glenn Maxwell. How could he claim to have never met her? The Duke, who denies any wrongdoing, pay millions to settle a lawsuit. Virginia Ransom made a number of other wild allegations in the emails, including an accusation that her friend was approached by, quote, special agents forces men sent directly by Hillary Clinton herself, unquote. She also claimed that Trump had sex with many girls, including an unnamed friend of hers. She told Callahan, I also know she had sexual relations with Trump at Jeffrey's New York mansion on regular occasions. Ransom also took aim at Hillary Clinton in her email saying, I will make sure that neither that evil blank Hillary or that pedophile Trump gets elected. She wrote, I will also make sure that everyone on the GD planet sees that footage and photos and will release them to WikiLeaks by Sunday. Uh, seems like none of that ever happened, but anyway. In the letter to the court, the law firm representing Alan Dershowitz, Emery, Selly, Brinkerhoff, and Abadi LLP, said that Sarah Ransom's allegations against Dershowitz were categorically false. The firm said, quote, Her testimony was fabricated from whole cloth. Ms. Ransom's testimony also contains a slew of other incendiary claims concerning the sexual proclivities of Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, and other prominent individuals. The emails are a necessary antidote to Ms. Ransom's deposition misstatements because they demonstrate she manifestly lacks credibility, unquote. Now, Ransom did later retract her claims, telling Callahan she wanted to, quote, walk away from this, unquote, citing fears for her family. In 2019, the New Yorker reported that Ransom admitted to inventing the tape's story, quote, to draw attention to Epstein's behavior and to make him believe that she had evidence that would come out if he harmed me, unquote. Ransom was introduced to Jeffrey Epstein September 2006 when she was 22 years old. This is from the New Yorker now. She had gone through a painful breakup and had dropped out of college in Edinburgh because she couldn't afford the tuition. She decided to spend most of her remaining money on a flight to New York. She said, at 22, you're so naive, but I was in New York to make friends, to get over heartbreak, to try to get an education. You know, it's land of dreams. Soon after she arrived, a new friend introduced her to Epstein, describing his, uh, him as a philanthropist who used his wealth and his connections to help poor young women if they gave him massages. As the massages turned sexual, Ransom said she was given the use of a huge apartment 
and Epstein's building on the upper on the Upper East Side, along with a cell phone, a car service account, and money for living expenses. Ransom said that she dreamed of studying at the Fashion Institute of Technology and that Epstein and Maxwell promised to arrange her admission. For Ransom, as for the other women, these benefits depended on her having sex with Epstein and with his friends. In her affidavit, she named Dershowitz as one of those friends. Ransom was another imperfect witness. In the fall of 2016, she had suggested to the New York Post that she had sex tapes of half a dozen prominent people, including Bill Clinton and Donald Trump, but couldn't provide the tapes when asked. Now, that's from the, uh, the New Yorker. Technofog says Maxwell's been in jail since July 2020, despite attempts by her defense team to have her released on bail. Ransom gave a victim impact statement June 2022 ahead of Glenn Maxwell's sentencing for sex trafficking. The disgraced British socialite was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Ransom stated in a New York federal court, soon after lulling me and others into a false sense of comfort and security, they pounced, ensnaring us in their upside-down, twisted world of rape, rape, and more rape. She said, like Hotel California, you could check into the Epstein-Maxwell dungeon of sexual hell, but you can never leave. Ransom described Maxwell as the same woman she was when they had met almost 20 years earlier. Ransom told the court, quote, after all of this, how can the five-star general of this enormous sex trafficking conspiracy involving so many co-conspirators that snared hundreds if not thousands of vulnerable girls and young women over three decades continued to maintain her innocence because of her wealth, social status, and connections. She believes herself beyond reproach and above the law. Sentencing her to the rest of her life in prison will not change her, but will give other survivors and me a slight sense of justice, and help us as we continue to work to recover from the sex trafficking hell she perpetrated. Unquote. Ransom broke down in tears as she said Maxwell and Epstein told her she was exceptionally intelligent and had the potential to be someone in life. Ransom stated, quote, I frequently experience flashbacks and wake up in a cold sweat from nightmares reliving the awful experience. She added, I am hypervigilant, experience dramatic mood changes, and avoid certain places, situations, and people. I will sometimes start crying uncontrollably and without apparent reason. I've worked hard with several mental health professionals who have diagnosed me with extreme symptoms of anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, PTSD, and tendencies to self-harm, unquote. Ransom told the court that she twice attempted to kill herself and it is only by the grace of God that she continues to live. After the sentencing, Ransom said she was disappointed that Maxwell still maintains her innocence 
She said she wanted Maxwell to spend the rest of her life in jail because she's dangerous. Ransom told reporters outside of the court, quote, I was raped three times a day sometimes, and I was not the only girl on that island, unquote. She added, quote, there was a constant stream of girls being raped over and over and over and over again. Yes, they must die in prison. Talking about Maxwell and Epstein. Now, Epstein was indicted in 2019 for sexually abusing dozens of girls, some as young as 14 years old, at his homes in New York and Palm Beach, Florida. He was incarcerated in the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York City and faced a potential four-decade prison sentence. He died in his jail cell while awaiting trial, and NYC's chief medical examiner concluded that Epstein's cause of death was suicide by hanging. Due to multiple irregularities associated with his death, however, many people believe that he was murdered. Okay, now that's Deborah Hine reporting over at American Greatness on the latest developments in the Epstein case. Now remember what Epstein and his clients and handlers did to an unknown number of young women is an outrage. And justice must be done. But I want to finally look at how it is that the DOJ got the idea and, and, and actually followed through on the idea of giving Jeffrey Epstein a, um, an unprecedented Sweetheart plea bargain deal. And that's coming up next on the Doc Washburn Show. Mike Lindell says because of your amazing support for MyPillow 2.0, he's expanded MyPillow's USA manufacturing and jobs. So he's clearing out his percale bed sheets by giving them to you at closeout prices. King size percale bed sheets, only $39 a set. Queen size, only $35 a set. Full size, $29 and twin size, just $25. Use promo code DWS to take advantage of this once-in-a-lifetime offer. Right now, Mike's biggest My Slippers closeout sale ever is on. Get Mike's all-season My Slippers and Sandals at clearance prices. Mike's all-season Moccasin Slippers are just $25. Mike's My Slippers Sandals are just $19.50. They're both made with Mike's patented impact gel that absorbs and relieves pressure so you can comfortably wear them all day long. Just use promo code DWS for huge discounts. Remember, DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. MyPillow.com, quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. You know, the great Ronald Reagan once said, inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one, investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. They don't tend to depreciate over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. 
Andrew Sorcini with Beverly Hills Precious Metals has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. Beverly Hills Precious Metals brings precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. Mike Flynn told us about them, and they are our gold buyer of choice. To find out more, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. Make sure you ask about the General Mike Flynn Silver Coin and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Beverly Hills Precious Metals helps folks protect their finances, wealth, and investments. Let me ask you something. Why continue shopping big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now you can get around this crazy inflation by shopping factory direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Americans are walking away from the big box conglomerates and deciding to buy only USA. Join with fellow patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. These products include fresh American-raised beef, Raised in the Montana mountains near Yellowstone, this beef is known as never ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Email us at buyonlyusa at proton.me, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. Buyonlyusa at proton.me. All right, let's take a look at Maine Justice. Here's what I find fascinating, and maybe it's just because I'm not a lawyer. But the sweetheart deal plea agreement that Epstein signed with the feds was inked by Epstein's attorney on October 29, 2007 and signed by the U.S. Attorney of South Florida's office a day later. So if Technofog is correct here, and this unprecedented plea agreement implicated not just the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Florida, Alex Acosta, but also main justice in D.C., I wanted to know who was in charge. Who was the attorney general when the deal was signed? Where does the buck stop? So I did some digging. I found out George W. Bush's attorney general, Alberto Gonzalez, had left office six weeks earlier. So did he know what was in the works concerning Epstein's unbelievable plea deal? I cannot find the answer to that in my research. So... Have you heard about this chat GPT thing, this, this AI deal where all the big internet search engines have a version of it? Google has it and Bing has it and all this. Well, I decided since I can't find the answer, maybe I should ask Bing's AI-generated chat, and here's the response I got. I'm sorry but I cannot provide a definitive answer to your question. However, according to an article by ABC News, the Department of Justice's Office of Professional Responsibility, the OPR office, conducted a review of the so-called sweetheart deal reached by federal prosecutors in Florida with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. The report determined that none of the five federal prosecutors who were deeply involved in the Epstein investigation committed professional misconduct 
or violated any clear and unambiguous rules when they reached the deal without informing or consulting with victims. Instead, the OPR report faulted former Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta, then the U.S. Attorney in Miami, for exhibiting poor judgment in deciding to resolve the Epstein case through a non-prosecution agreement and in failing to make certain the alleged victims were notified in advance of Epstein's guilty plea in state court that ended the federal investigation. So that's the, uh, the AI-fueled chat of, of Bing.com. So I'm looking at that, and I said to myself, well, isn't that a kick in the head for Acosta? So the government has decided it's all his fault. He's the scapegoat. Now, as we told you in our last episode, Jeffrey Epstein Part 1, in 2019, when Epstein's second arrest brought the sweetheart deal from 2007 back into the public eye, Acosta said he offered a lenient plea deal because he was told that Epstein belonged to intelligence, was above his pay grade, and to leave it alone. So who told him that? who was his boss. When Alberto Gonzalez resigned as attorney general, President Bush appointed former federal judge Michael Mukasey to be his next AG. But wait, 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 wait. Mukasey didn't take office until November 9, 2007, 10 days after the deal went down. So, okay, so who was running the Justice Department in the meantime? If U.S. Attorney for Southern Florida, Alex Acosta's boss, told him that Epstein belonged to intelligence, was above his pay grade, and to leave it alone, who was that boss? Well, Peter Keisler, United States Assistant Attorney General for the Civil Division, was the acting AG beginning the day after Gonzalez left office September 17, 2007 and continuing right up until the day Mukasey took over November 9th, 2007. So if Acosta is telling the truth, why would the acting AG, Peter Keisler, give him orders to offer an unprecedentedly broad plea deal to a really bad guy like Jeffrey Epstein? I had to keep digging because, I mean... Somebody's got to find out what the deal is, right? So I looked into Peter Keisler. Back on September 6, 2007, Keisler had announced he was going to retire from the Justice Department to spend time with his family. Okay, he was only 46 years old, had a good-paying job, and decided to retire to spend time with his family? Really? Really? Now, he's a good enough attorney to be an assistant attorney general at the U.S. Department of Justice, but his working days are over at the ripe old age of 46? That didn't add up. So 11 days later, on September 17th, the day Alberto Gonzalez left office as AG, President Bush announced that Keisler had agreed to remain at the Department of Justice as acting attorney general until the Senate confirmation of new Attorney General Michael Mukasey. So did Acting Attorney General Peter Keisler tell U.S. Attorney 
Alex Acosta to lay off Epstein and give him a sweetheart deal simply because then-CIA Director Michael Hayden, who, by the way, is as nutty as a Claxton, Georgia fruitcake, CIA Director Michael Hayden told him, hey, he's one of our guys, leave him alone. Is that, is that the only reason this happened? Well, maybe. But is there more to it than that? And that's what I had to find out. First of all, what did Keisler do after he left DOJ? Well, a little over four months later, on March 18th, 2008, after spending several months of quality time with his family, it was announced that Peter Keisler would be returning to his former position as a partner at a huge law firm called Sidley Austin as a global coordinator of the firm's appellate practice in its Washington, D.C. office. Later that year, the Sidley Austin Law Firm announced that Keisler would be joining the firm's executive committee, the committee that exercises general authority over the affairs of the firm. And to this day, almost 16 years later, Keisler is still listed on their website as senior counsel at Sidley Austin. Now, when I tell you what Sidley Austin is, you'll understand what a big deal this is, but we still haven't gotten to the Epstein connection. Wikipedia helpfully offers the thumbnail sketch of Sidley Austin. It's an American multinational law firm with approximately 2,300 lawyers and 21 offices worldwide. It was established way back in 1866. And its headquarters are at 1 South Dearborn in Chicago's Loop. Among its notable alumni are former President Barack Obama, former First Lady Michelle Obama, and Republican U.S. Senators Mike Lee of Utah and J.D. Vance of Ohio. So this is one of the oldest, largest, and most influential law firms in America. But what does that have to do with Jeffrey Epstein? I had to know, and I owe it to you, to discover whether there was a connection between acting AG Peter Keisler, if indeed he told the U.S. attorney to give Epstein an unheard of sweetheart plea deal, and Epstein himself. So I kept digging, and I did find something that troubled me. On July 29th, 2019, almost four and a half years ago, WallStreetOnParade.com, a financial news site that has been around for years, published an article entitled, J.P. Morgan and Sidley Austin were involved in the mysterious $6.7 billion company chaired by Jeffrey Epstein. Wow. So the article dropped 13 days after Epstein was arrested and 22 days before he didn't kill himself at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York City. So I tried to see if I could maybe put the pieces together. You know, I mean, a lot of people believe that Epstein may have skated in the first prosecution back in 2007 because of his ties to the CIA, FBI, possibly even Israel's intelligence agency, Mossad, 
A lot of folks were also rightly upset with Alex Acosta, even though he has consistently maintained that he was just following orders. But Wall Street on Parade looks to be the only media entity anywhere to report on the Sidley Austin law firm connection to Jeffrey Epstein. For four and a half years, they have been like a voice crying in the wilderness. And apparently, I'm the first person even to look into the possibility of corruption regarding Alex Acosta's superior at DOJ, Peter Keisler, just wondering whether he called the shots before returning to a senior position at Sidley Austin. So here's what the Wall Street on Parade article by Pam and Russ Martins said. Jeffrey Epstein, the accused sex trafficker of underage schoolgirls, presided over a $6.7 billion offshore company as its chairman from November 9, 2001 to at least March 19, 2007, a period which he is accused of committing his sex trafficking crimes against minors. The company is called Liquid Funding Limited, and it had two offshore connections. It was incorporated in Bermuda on October 19th, 2000, by the Appleby Law Firm, known for setting up offshore companies in secrecy jurisdictions. Liquid Funding's investment manager was Bear Stearns. Remember, I told you we were coming back to Bear Stearns. Liquid Funding's investment manager was Bear Stearns Bank PLC in Dublin, Ireland, a non-U.S. regulated institution which was later merged into J.P. Morgan Bank Dublin. A Securities and Exchange Commission filing by Bear Stearns prior to its epic collapse in 2008 indicated that Bear Stearns owned 40% of Liquid Funding Limited's equity, but the owners of the other 60% remain a mystery. The ratings firm Fitch reported in 2006 that the company had $6.7 billion in outstanding liabilities. Now, what those liabilities consisted of and who paid them off when Bear Stearns collapsed remain largely unknown, although we did track down $364 million of liquid funding's commercial paper stuffed into U.S. money market funds. Now, two of J.P. Morgan's money market funds held a total of $100 million. Two Dreyfus money markets held at least $139 million. And a Frank Russell money market fund held $125 million. Since our last report, we have uncovered new details from a report issued in 2004 by the Moody's Ratings Agency. J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Natexas Bank, Populaire, extended the company a $250 million liquidity facility, and Deloitte was its auditor. Now, in the Texas Bank, Populaire, that's N-A-T-E-X-I-S, B-A-N-Q-U-E, P-O-P-U-L-A-I-R-E. That sounds like a French deal. I'm sure we'll get that in a few. J.P. Morgan Chase is also listed as its security trustee. The large corporate law firm, Sidley Austin, was its legal counsel. Okay, 
$6.7 billion shady company Epstein's in charge of, and Sidley Austin is his legal counsel. This is becoming kind of uncomfortable. They say, we reached out to J.P. Morgan, Sidley Austin, and Deloitte, seeking information on how Epstein came to chair the company and additional details. Thus far, we have not received a response from any of the three that the French bank, the Texas Banque Populaire, was part of the liquidity facility with two U.S. banks, suggests that liquid funding may have had business dealings in France. Epstein has an apartment in Paris, as well as mansions in Manhattan, Palm Beach, New Mexico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Now, now remember, this was when Epstein was still alive back in July 2019 when they said this. The involvement of J.P. Morgan Chase is particularly interesting in a company where Bear Stearns is a 40% owner and Jeffrey Epstein is chairman. The New York Times reported that a key executive, J.P. Morgan Chase, Jess Staley, visited Epstein when he was serving out his sentence of 13 months in Palm Beach, Florida, a decade ago. Epstein was able to escape federal prosecution then, despite compelling evidence that he had sexually abused dozens of underage girls for years. J.P. Morgan's involvement is further interesting because the Federal Reserve Bank of New York provided a $28.8 billion loan to take that amount, the toxic assets, off of Bear Stearns' balance sheet and put them in a concoction called Maiden Lane LLC in order to sweeten the pot for J.P. Morgan Chase to take over Bear Stearns when it blew itself up with bad investments in 2008. Bear Stearns also ended up getting an $853 billion lifeline, that's billion with a B, from the Federal Reserve and low-cost revolving loans that the Fed fought to keep secret along with the rest of its $29 trillion bailout of Wall Street and foreign banks during the financial crash. The long-standing mandate of the Federal Reserve is to be a lender of last resort the federally insured, taxpayer-backstopped commercial banks in times of panic. Bear Stearns was an investment bank with no federally insured commercial bank in the U.S., and yet for some reason it received an open spigot from the Fed. Jeffrey Epstein currently resides in an 8 by 8 jail cell in the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Lower Manhattan, while Julie K. Brown of the Miami Herald has provided Pulitzer-worthy reporting on what Epstein and his enablers did to these young schoolgirls. Business media is delving into how this college dropout who lied his way into both a teaching job at the prestigious Dalton School and at the investment bank Bear Stearns, how he made his reported $500 million in wealth. According to the Wall Street Journal, Epstein falsely claimed that he had graduated from Stanford to get into the Dalton School and Bear Stearns. In fact, he never attended Stanford, and he dropped out of NYU. What is known so far about Epstein's wealth is that Epstein was collecting large sums of money from billionaire Leslie Wexner, the founder, chairman, and CEO of L Brands, parent of retail outlets Victoria's Secret, Bed, and Bath and Body Works, and Pink. 
Epstein was a multitasker for Wexner, overseeing the management of his money, his charities, his tax reduction strategies, even his prenuptial agreement. Wexner was so confident in his trust of Epstein that he gave him an almost unlimited power of attorney, a decision that seems wildly irresponsible since Epstein was neither a family member nor an attorney. Now, the board of L Brands said last week, and again, this was back in 2019, that they have hired an outside law firm to conduct an internal review of Epstein's involvement with the company, but particularly, but peculiarly, they will not name the law firm, and our inquiry to their media relations department on that subject went unanswered. We also know that Epstein had a number of cozy Wall Street relationships because he was able to get his hands on highly sought-after and hard-to-come-by hot initial public offerings, IPOs, where a tidy profit can be made in a one-day flip of the stock when it pops on its first day of trading. We reported on Epstein's flipping of IPOs on July 15th, and Barron's added more to our story on Friday, finding that Morgan Stanley was the lead underwriter in the deals that Epstein's charity, Gratitude America, got in on and the sole underwriter in 12 of the deals. While mainstream media has done an unusually good job at filling in some of the puzzle pieces, many mysteries remain about Epstein, including his private jet travels to foreign countries, his fake Austrian passport found by prosecutors in the safe of his Manhattan mansion listing a fake name and a residence in Saudi Arabia, and his little black book containing the names of powerful politicians, world leaders, and Wall Street's power brokers, some of whom have turned up on the flight logs of his private jets. The only reason that Liquid Funding's name came to light was that someone leaked a trove of documents from the law firm Appleby in 2017, and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists compiled a searchable database of the documents. Now, the structure of Liquid Funding Limited was unusual, to say the least. Fitch reported on October 24, 2006, that it could issue liabilities up to $20 billion made up of commercial paper, guaranteed investment contracts, medium-term notes, and repurchase agreements, but that it would only have $100 million in equity. Bear Stearns reported in a regulatory filing that, quote, the company's maximum exposure to loss as a result of its investment in this entity is approximately $5 million, unquote. According to a March 22, 2007 filing with the SEC, one of the parties with which liquid funding had provided a loan facility of up to $200 million in 2005 in exchange for a master repurchase agreement was Fieldstone Investment Corporation, a subprime lender. In the document... Fieldstone refers to the Liquid Funding Limited as a subsidiary of Bear Stearns & Company. If indeed Bear Stearns had consolidated liquid funding on its balance sheet at that point, then it was clearly part of the Federal Reserve bailout. But we cannot say that with any confidence, and those who could help clear up this matter, the auditor Deloitte, Liquid Funding's law firm Sidley Austin, and its liquidity provider and security trustee J.P. Morgan Chase, aren't 
talking. Okay, so that's the article from July 29th, 2019, entitled, J.P. Morgan and Sidley Austin were involved in the mysterious $6.7 billion company chaired by Jeffrey Epstein. The article is over at uh, Wall Street on Parade. So let the record reflect the fact that Wall Street on Parade published an article that was an update almost four years later, and none of the parties they reached out to, Deloitte, Sidley Austin, or J.P. Morgan Chase, ever responded. What does that tell you? Okay, so now we stand at a crossroads. This whole mess about Epstein, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Sidley Austin stinks to high heaven. And $6.7 billion is an awful lot of money. But can we develop credible evidence that Peter Keisler, acting Attorney General of the U.S. Department of Justice, when the sweetheart deal was signed between U.S. Attorney Southern Florida, Alex Acosta, and Jeffrey Epstein, can we develop credible evidence that Peter Keisler, who was about to go back to work at Sidley Austin, told Alex Acosta to go easy on Epstein? And can we develop credible evidence that implies that Keisler had some kind of financial motive for ordering U.S. Attorney Alex Acosta to go easy on Epstein? So, I looked into Peter Keisler. What is his background? What is he all about? Frankly, I was shocked at what I found because it was not at all what I expected to find. For instance, in 1982, Peter Keisler helped to co-found the Federalist Society. Well, that's a pretty good organization. He received his JD from Yale Law School in 1985. After law school, Peter Keisler clerked for the great judge Robert Bork on the D.C. Circuit from 1985 to 1986. After this clerkship, he joined the Office of Legal Counsel under President Ronald Reagan. There he worked on the failed Supreme Court nomination of his former boss, also a great man, Robert Bork, and then on the successful Supreme Court nomination of Anthony Kennedy. Afterward, Keisler served as a clerk for Justice Kennedy in 1988. After finishing his clerkship there at the U.S. Supreme Court, Keisler became a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Sidley Austin. He specialized in general and appellate litigation and telecommunications law and argued before the U.S. Supreme Court and numerous federal courts of appeals. In 2002, he left his job in order to join the Department of Justice he joined the department June 24, 2002, as the principal deputy associate attorney general and acting associate attorney general. So, lo and behold, Keisler here sounds like an actual conservative. He sounds like, you know, one of the good guys, if you will. So, as shady as the Epstein, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Sidley, Austin deal sounds, as of yet, Keisler himself doesn't sound shady. After all, Sidley Austin does have 2,300 lawyers and 21 offices worldwide, so the overwhelming majority of them probably don't know anything at all about some shady offshore company Jeffrey Epstein ran. So then it dawned on me that when this sweetheart deal story blew up in 2019, thank you, Miami Herald, Alex Acosta, 
who, remember, by this time was a senior cabinet official, labor secretary, and the Trump administration must have talked to the media about it. And sure enough, I found a 37-minute video on YouTube in which Alex Acosta did exactly that. He talked to the media about the Epstein deal. Now, there are a couple of questions and answers right at the end of this 37-minute press conference video on YouTube that I owe you. First of all, a reporter named Neil McCabe, who at that time was over at One American News, asked Alex Acosta, who at Maine Justice reviewed this case or your decision, and did you have any interaction with Robert Mueller at the time? Remember, Robert Mueller was the uh, FBI director. This is a guy... This is a guy, uh, you know, after my own heart here. This, this, is, this is fantastic, this question. And here's Acosta's answer. Um, so I, I shared a letter that I wrote to one of Epstein's defense attorneys, and I shared that letter in part because it shows much of the timeline. It shows how initially um, the, the meetings that took place were between the, uh, in July, between the first assistant, the criminal chief, the Palm Beach, the Palm Beach office chief, and the line attorney and two FBI agents with Epstein's attorneys. You'll notice that the initial meeting, as outlined in this letter, were all career attorneys, how they presented the terms, how Epstein's attorneys were dissatisfied and asked for a meeting with me, how I subsequently went with their attorneys, along with all the career officials, how at that meeting we then invited the chief of the child exploitation and obscenity section from the Department of Justice to travel down because one of the you know one of the things we wanted to make sure of was that we had going back to the earlier question about the ABA rule that we had sufficient evidence to proceed ethically um, and then it details a little bit on how Epstein's counsels appealed the decisions to Washington. I'd refer you to the record. You know, one of the really disturbing things about this case is there's a record here. The documents that I shared today, we've shared previously with media, yet I've seen no reference to any of these documents in the perspective of some of these prosecutors. There is a record. All these documents are publicly available and could have been pulled up by anyone in this room. And so, and, and, and so, you know, there, there is a record that will, you know, I wasn't at Maine Justice. I do not have a full list of the individuals that, that reviewed this matter at Maine Justice. I can tell you um, the individuals referenced in this letter. Um, and, and I would refer you to the record because this was 12 years ago. I do not have a full list of the individuals that reviewed this at Maine Justice. Okay, wait. So is he telling us, Alice Acosta is telling us he doesn't even know how far up the food chain at DOJ the decision to okay the sweetheart deal went? So how can we possibly find out? I mean, so much for pinning this thing conclusively on Peter Keisler, the guy who left DOJ to be a partner at the law firm, which had Epstein's shadowy $6.7 billion company as a client. 
Okay, and then reporter Andrew McCabe has a follow-up question, which he asks off mic while Acosta is still speaking, so there's crosstalk, and for the life of me, I cannot figure out what he asked. But I definitely understand Alex Acosta's response. Um, well, the, as, as the record makes clear, individuals from Maine Justice were involved uh, fairly early on, and we're certainly aware of it. And, and I think if you look at the record, it will become clear that our decisions were appealed again and again to, to Maine Justice. Okay, so let's recap here. Acosta is saying Maine Justice maybe acting AG Keisler, maybe not. But Maine Justice was all over the decision to give Epstein the sweetheart deal, and yet all these years later, DOJ's Office of Professional Responsibility comes out with a report saying, nope, nobody at Maine Justice did anything shady. No one else, none of the other prosecutors in Acosta's South Florida U.S. Attorney Office did anything shady, just Acosta. So at first blush, that sounded odd. Next question is from a reporter for a British paper, the Financial Times, who asked this. He said, the deal that you negotiated resulted in two things. One is that the case ended with Mr. Epstein pleading to state prosecution charges, and another thing that it did was that it immunized his co-conspirators. So two questions. Did you consider his victims in that case to be prostitutes? And why did you immunize his co-conspirators? Wow! This reporter is asking what I guess we would refer to as tough but fair questions. Yikes! Okay. And here's Acosta. Um, so the answer to were the victims prostitutes? No. Victims, they were victims. End of story. They were victims. Um, the second part of that is in the purpose in this case was to bring Epstein to jail, to put him behind bars. And so there were other individuals that may have been involved that um, in any type of conspiracy, there are individuals around someone. Um, the focus really is on the top player. And that's where our focus appropriately was. Let me, um, let me also say something, because a lot has been said about this 13-month. Um, when we proceeded, the expectation was that it would be an 18-month sentence. And the expectation was that it would be served in jail. And so this work release was complete BS. And I've been on record as far back as 2011 saying that it was not what was bargained for and it was not what we expected. But this was a state court plea, and because it was a state court plea, the terms of confinement were under the jurisdiction of the state of Florida. And so the outrage over that 13-month, you know, getting to, to leave jail is entirely appropriate. Okay, now, unfortunately, that is where the uh, YouTube video stops. So Acosta is blaming the state of Florida on the terms of the sweetheart deal. You got me? He's saying, hey, wait a minute. Um, 
we didn't think it was going to go down like that. We just uh, agreed not to prosecute him federally or his co-conspirators if he would agree to terms with Florida. Yeah, I got a hard time believing that. Anyway, I had originally planned to call this episode of the Doc Washburn Show world-exclusive why Epstein got the sweetheart deal because I thought I was going to be able to show that acting Attorney General Peter Keisler was somehow directing a process to impede the cause of justice. But after looking at all the available evidence, I can tell you right here and now, I cannot prove that. And let me tell you something else. If you're going to claim that correlation shows causation, you'd better be able to prove it. I mean, maybe Keisler had something to do with it. Maybe he didn't. But I can't just deceive you to try to get more downloads on my podcast or clicks on social media. The ninth commandment that God gave to Moses on those tablets of stone on Mount Sinai said, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So I just can't do that to you, but more importantly, I can't intentionally violate God's commandment. Now, Acosta sounds very believable in the clips I just played you, but I owe it to you to give you three rebuttals. Now, the first one is from an anonymous comment from the New York Post I found on Reddit. And here's what this says. Who writes an immunity deal for a guy accused of acts with an underage girl, but for both known and unknown co-conspirators, unless there was way more going on than just acts with a minor? This Florida immunity deal, Epstein got needs to be thrown out. It is unreasonably broad. It gave blanket immunity to all prosecution for all of Epstein's known and unknown, named and unnamed, co-conspirators and associates. That's too broad. You can't just do that. It can't apply to crimes committed in other states, and we know Epstein committed these crimes also on his island, as well as in New York State and out west where he had a ranch. It also cannot cover him for federal crimes, but it does. It is treated as though it covers him and all his associates for all time in all jurisdictions, whether their criminality was known back then or not. Dershowitz is the one who proposed these terms, by the way. It is his immunity agreement. He himself has been accused of criminality in the same matter. That means the immunity deal was rotten and should be thrown out. Plus, the immunity deal ostensibly was focused on Epstein, who is now no more on earth, so this deal should be thrown out. The second rebuttal to Acosta is from a writer I really respect, Mary Chastain, from a website I really respect, LegalInsurrection.com. Her column from July 12, 2019, two days after the audio clips I played you, is entitled, Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta resigns amid controversy over Jeffrey Epstein deal. That's right. He announced his resignation two days after the press conference about the Epstein sweetheart deal 
from which I played audio sound bites. Here's what Mary Chastain said. Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta told reporters with President Donald Trump by his side that he will resign from his post effective in one week. Acosta has come under fire recently over the way he handled the sex trafficking case against Jeffrey Epstein in 2008 as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Florida. The anger toward Acosta for giving Epstein a sweetheart deal in 2008 has never fully gone away and only came to the forefront after authorities arrested Epstein on July 6th and indicted him on sex trafficking conspiracy and one count of sex trafficking with underage females. Acosta told reporters he decided to resign because he does not think, quote, it is right for this administration's Labor Department to have Epstein as the focus rather than the incredible economy, unquote. He will release his letter later today. Acosta allowed Epstein to plead to two state of Florida prostitution charges, ultimately serving only 13 months and avoiding a federal trial, unquote, and register as a sex offender while paying, quote, restitution to the victims identified by the FBI, unquote. The deal also included secrecy from the victims, which went against federal law. A Florida judge ruled in February that Acosta's team broke the law. And she includes the following excerpt from the article from CNBC about that ruling. CNBC says, A Florida judge ruled in February 2019 that the team of Miami prosecutors, led by Acosta, broke the law when they concealed that plea agreement from more than 30 underage victims who have been sexually abused by Jeffrey Epstein. In a statement in response to the ruling, Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat Virginia, said, A judge has confirmed what we've known for some time, that when Secretary Acosta was a federal prosecutor, his office violated survivors' rights under federal law when giving serial sexual abuser Jeffrey Epstein what the Miami Herald calls the deal of a lifetime. The Department of Justice needs to swiftly investigate whether Secretary Acosta violated standard DOJ practice in giving Epstein his, this sweetheart deal, ensure accountability for any wrongdoing, and pursue justice for survivors. During a press conference yesterday, Acosta described Epstein's crimes as horrific and expressed gratitude that prosecutors have gone forward with the case. Reporters asked him if he had any regrets, but Acosta just insisted the times have changed and prosecutors have more evidence. He also suggested that the world today, quote, treats victims very, very differently, unquote. However, the conference went downhill after Acosta doubled down on his actions in 2008. He claimed that, quote, his office intervened only after state prosecutors were ready to let Epstein walk free, unquote. Barry Krischer, the man who served as Palm Beach County State Attorney at that time, fired back that Acosta did not have facts to back him up because federal prosecutors do not take a backseat to state prosecutors, unquote. Wow. Okay, that's Mary Chastain over at uh, LegalInsurrection.com. 
Okay, last but certainly not least, another journalist I admire from another news site I hold in high regard, the great Paul Myringoff over at PowerlineBlog.com had an update on the story November 13, 2020, entitled DOJ Finds Poor Judgment But No Corruption in Acosta's Handling of Epstein Case. That's a troubling headline, isn't it? Myron Goff opines, Jeffrey Epstein was a serial abuser of underage girls who got a sweetheart plea deal from then-U.S. Attorney Alex Acosta in 2008. More than a decade later, after the Miami Herald blew the whistle on the deal, the Department of Justice conducted an investigation. The findings of the investigation were released yesterday. The DOJ concluded that Acosta exercised poor judgment, but not professional misconduct. and found no evidence that Acosta signed off on the deal based on corruption or other impermissible considerations such as Epstein's wealth status or associations. Now, poor judgment and corruption slash impermissible considerations aren't the only possible ways to categorize Acosta's handling of the Epstein case. Adam Horowitz, an attorney who represents some of Epstein's victims, calls Acosta's conduct reckless. Senator Ben Sass. Republican of Kansas calls it a disgusting failure. Well, what accounts for the failure? Why did Acosta agree to such an epically bad deal? We might have a better idea of Acosta's thinking had not his emails from the relevant period, May 2007 to May 2008, been irretrievably lost due to a so-called technical glitch. Oh, I see. We might have a better idea of the degree, if any, to which Epstein's attorneys exerted undue influence had DOJ investigators actually interviewed members of Epstein's defense team. But according to, but according to former U.S. District Judge Paul Castle, who represents some of Epstein's victims, the DOJ did not conduct such interviews. Citing this failure, Castle himself a former high-ranking Justice Department official, calls the DOJ's report a cover-up. We are left, then, to speculate about Acosta's thinking. I believe Acosta was overawed by Epstein's defense team. He was overawed by the prospect of having to litigate against its lawyers. In addition, I believe he was overawed by their prestige and connections to the D.C. Republican legal establishment he hoped to rejoin and did rejoin after he completed his time as U.S. attorney in South Florida. I'm not surprised that the DOJ found no evidence of corruption in the strong sense. I'm pretty sure that even a more thorough investigation wouldn't have revealed payments to Acosta or promises of future benefits or employment. Acosta's emails, had they not been... <clears throat> lost might or might not have been consistent with my view of his thinking. I doubt we'll ever know for sure why Acosta agreed to the sweetheart deal. The best we can do is to go with Senator Ben Sass's description. Acosta's handling of the Epstein's case and that of the DOJ as a whole was a disgusting failure. 
So that is the great Paul Myringoff over at thegreatpowerlineblog.com. Yes, the plea agreement really stinks, and it really should be thrown out. And yes, I agree that the DOJ investigation into Acosta sure smells like a cover-up. And yes, I wonder if there will ever be justice on this earth for Epstein's victims. I wonder if his co-conspirators will ever be held accountable. Because when you think about it, there are only two people indicted, Epstein, who didn't kill himself in that jail, and Glenn Maxwell. And Glenn Maxwell gets a 20-year prison sentence for trafficking girls to whom? There's a list. Nobody else is indicted. One of the chief prosecutors in the team at Southern District of New York that indicted Glenn Maxwell on those federal charges and oversaw the trial was James Comey's daughter. I don't know. I don't know if there would be justice on this earth for Epstein's many victims. But I do know this. We will all have to stand before God and give an account for what we've done on this earth. So we will keep an eye on the Epstein case and see if there are any new developments on that for you. All right, now it is time for our tweet of the day brought to you by Red River Auto. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom, to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice and buy it online at redriverauto.com. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. So I came across this um, this little video clip from Joe Rogan, Jim Brewer, stand-up comedy guy who used to be on Saturday Night Live years ago. Jim Brewer was talking to Joe Rogan about Pinocchio, the Walt Disney animated film Pinocchio from way back in 1940. And it reminded Jim Brewer and Joe Rogan of Jeffrey Epstein's island. And so it might also remind you of Jeffrey Epstein's island. First, we have the clip of Jim Brewer setting it up for Joe Rogan. I mean, even in the, in the Disney film, Pinocchio, it's unbelievable, the, the pub scene. He talks about yeah. bringing the boys to Pleasure Island, and then he starts whispering what happens to the boys, and the fox freaks out. He's like, but, but, and he goes, no, 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 no. They don't come back as boys. Watch it. Okay, so he's setting it up. He's explaining it, and he's saying, watch it. And then they play the clip from Pinocchio, a movie that came out over 83 years ago. Coachman, what's your proposition? Well, how would you blokes like to make some real money? Well, and who do we have to, uh... No, no, nothing like that. You see? I'm collecting stupid little boys. 
little miss? You know, the disobedient ones, what they all give from school. Oh, and I take them to Pleasure Island. Oh, uh, Pleasure Island. Pleasure Island? But the law, suppose they... No, no, there's no risk. They never come back as boys. So you sit there and you watch that, and, and and you're like, okay, this came out before Jeffrey Epstein was even born. So how far back does this evil go? Well, I guess it depends upon your terms. I mean, the broader picture goes all the way back to the to the garden, doesn't it? When the serpent said to Eve. Has God really said? I'll tell you one thing. I've read the back of the book and I know who wins. And it's not evil. But it is our creator, our Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ. So that's the good news. You've been listening to episode 421 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, The Views and Opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a Terribly Messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X, Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. And that's the way it is, Monday, January 15th, 2024.